listening to Light Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. I'm going to be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lords and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwells in Booth, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling the news, all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Elimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite, is dead also.
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The reading of the word of God. In our screw-ups, it's a question I've asked myself uh, many times throughout my life, just looking back on the, on the things that I've done, saying, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me how a, a perfect, holy God would ever come near the mess that I've made. Maybe you've asked that question of yourself from time to time. Maybe you feel like you've blown it, and, uh, and you screwed up so bad that whatever good things God had planned for you, those are probably out the window. You're like, there's no way God's coming anywhere near the disaster that I've made of my life. Maybe it was something you said that just destroyed a relationship. Maybe it was something sexual, like King David. Maybe you caused physical harm to someone. Um, or for some of you, it's a lie that you told, or someone you betrayed, and, and as much as you would like, you cannot take it back. It's done, it's done. Others of you today, maybe you're sitting here saying, Pastor Dave, you know, you want to talk about screw-ups? I wrote the book on screw-ups. I, I got, my whole life is just one screw-up after another. My whole life is just one series of bad choices upon another series of bad choices. So I can talk about screw-ups with you all day. Maybe you just feel like you're a screw-up in general. Well, the good news is, even the great King David can relate with us today. I'm sure he wondered the same thing. Where is God in the mess that I've made? You know, and King David had good reason to, to wonder that. I mean, he certainly screwed up, didn't he? We read in our passage today. Now, it might be surprising to you to learn that just a few chapters before this story, things could not have been better for David. I mean, you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and, and David's stock is on the rise. It looks like everything he touches turns to gold. There's literally nothing this guy can't accomplish. The Lord is with him. He's a man after God's own heart. He's just going after it. The kingdom is secure. He's the, he's the king that everyone wants to be like. And on top of that, God comes to him and makes some incredible promises. He says, David, I'm never going to remove my love from your family. He says, David, someone from your family line will always sit on the throne of Israel. This is big time stuff. God didn't just make these promises flippantly. And we've seen from our, from our Old Testament class that God keeps his promises. So everything's going great for David. And then this. It messes up big time. This is not a misdemeanor. This is not just, oh, whoops, whoops-a-daisy. This is a big-time screw-up from the man of God, one of the biggest men of God in the Bible. 
This is so big that, you know, I was talking with Nathan before the service that the, the book of Chronicles and, and the book of First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Samuel tell the story of David's life. Only First and Second Samuel have this story in them. Chronicles leaves it out. Um, and he gave me some good reasons of why that might be. Uh, some of the scholars have thought it's because it's just too shameful. It's just like, ah, we don't want to remind him of that story. We don't want to leave that legacy behind. But the rest of the Bible affirms that this actually happened. You see, it was the springtime, as we've read. Uh, the time when kings go out to the battle. And, and springtime it, in Jerusalem would have been almost the exact same time of year it is right now. Uh, late March, early April. Uh, if, if your travel agent puts you into Jerusalem during the springtime, you would see the almond trees are blossoming. The poppies are splashing the, the landscape with color. Everything's coming to life. It was this, this fleeting two to three week period in between their winter season and their summer season. Uh, now, winter's not such a bad deal in Jerusalem. It, it's colder and rainy. Occasionally, they'll get snow. But there's this, the, the springtime is especially sweet because it's not super hot like the summer days, and it's not cold and rainy. You get this in-between time like we have now. I mean, these last couple weeks have been amazing. And you know how everything feels. It just feels like everything's coming to life. Everything is better in the springtime, is it not? I mean, you roll down your windows and, and people are busting out their barbecues. You can smell what they're cooking. Uh, that, that aroma of fresh cut grass, is there anything like it after a long, long winter? And all your senses are awakened? It's the time of year it is for David. And we've got to be careful. Then it says it's the time of year when the kings go off to war. Um, war was very much a part of that culture. You either fought or you were overtaken. So many different people groups surrounding Israel as a little country that they had to be sort of on the offensive. You could say a good offense is a good defense. And so Israel wasn't concerned about attackers coming in, but they would go out to war anyway because they could expand their borders and make things more secure. And so that's what's going on here. But you notice that the kingdom's so prosperous that at this point, David can sort of delegate that. He'd be like, Joab, why don't you take the, the troops and uh, see, lay siege to Rabbah here? And I'll just come in when the victory's sure. I'll ride in when it looks like everything's locked up. And that's literally what kings would do in, in prosperous kingdoms. They'd just say, you guys go, you guys go take this, this place, and then when it looks like everything's done, I'll come in and the victory will be mine. He'll get the credit for it, basically. And that's what's going on here. He decides to chill at the palace. And, you know, David's probably a middle-aged guy like many of us in here. When he looks in the mirror, he probably sees a few flecks of gray in his hair. Um, but I picture him as kind of a cool cat, you know. Uh, he, he's probably like a George Clooney type of fellow. You know, he just, he gets older, but not really less cool. You know, he's just always pretty cool. And, and he, and the Bible tells us he's handsome. I picture he really knew how to, how to relax at the palace in style. He's probably wearing a long pair of Jordans, maybe some matching sandals, big baggy tank top or t-shirt, and he got the aviators on. And he's just strolling around the palace, just enjoying life, being the top dog in Israel. He's, he's got the life. If you wanted anybody's life in Israel, it's King David. I mean, this dude is revered. He's the, he's the guy. And so he says, hey, what's, what's, what better thing to do on a hot spring day, warm spring afternoon than just take a nap? He's down on his couch and gets up from his nap and says, what do I want to do now? I think I'll go take a stroll on the roof of the palace. Which, you know, the roof of the palace had a great view. They, they like us today, wanted to build um, real estate in places with a view. They're no different than us today. 
And so palaces were usually built where there was a view. Jerusalem itself is a city set on a hill, so it's kind of perched up there. But then the palace itself was also built up high. So when you looked out from David's palace, you could see the Kidron Valley, which is in full bloom, and all the trees are beginning to get leaves on them. And you could see across the valley, and there's the Mount of Olives, which basically just looked like three big hills. And, and then you could see out over all the, all the, the neighborhoods and, the, and the, the houses and the yards. So David says, I'll go up to the top of the palace and enjoy the view. And boy, did he get a view. A view he probably wasn't expecting, at least we hope not. He gets a view of Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, taking a bath. I always wondered, you know, doesn't that seem ironic that Bathsheba becomes famous for taking a bath? It's almost like they named her after the story took place. You know, like, well, her name was Sally, but let's call her Bathsheba because it makes more sense here. Um, so what happens. She's taking a bath, and, you know, some of the preachers in, in past years have dogged Bathsheba for, well, she shouldn't have been taking a bath where David could see her, and she's trying to tempt him. I just don't think anything like that is going on here at all. This is a ceremonial bath that, that Bathsheba is likely taking uh, as, as, as a Jewish woman that is part of her ritual to cleanse herself from her menstrual cycle. And they didn't have indoor plumbing, so she's outside, and she doesn't know the king's peeping in on her. And so this is not something that, uh, that we should be, uh, think anything of. This is just a very, very normal circumstance in those days. And David sees her and begins to get obsessed with her. Uh, I was thinking about how this would be in our culture today. What could be kind of like this? And, you know, I was taken back to my middle school years, of course. And uh, we had this deck that goes out in the backyard of our house. And Kitty Corner from us lived this family. And they had, uh, you know, we were in sixth, seventh grade maybe. And they had this college-age daughter. And she was not unattractive, all right? And uh, so, you know, me and my friends, when we started, the hormones started hitting us and we started, like, you know, noticing women, all of a sudden we started noticing that every summer she would get her swimsuit on, go to the roof of her house, which was sort of flat and in plain view from our house, and she would just lay out there with all these oils tanning. And we tried to play baseball and the other things we normally did, but it didn't work very well during those days, and we ended up, you know, sitting on my deck and just sort of enjoying the view. But David's not a middle school guy like we were, okay? He's a grown man, uh, and here he is, you know, spying on this woman, peeping in on her, all right? And he begins to get obsessed about her, you know, just looking at her. She's beautiful, and, uh, and, and he lets that run, and he kind of shows us what power does for a person, and he begins to inquire about her. You know, today he probably would have gone on Facebook or Instagram and stalked her that way. And who is this woman? But he didn't have any of that stuff today. in that day. So he just said to his servant, who is this lady down there? And, and he says to him, you know, clearly the text tells us this. So it just puts, it leaves no doubt that this is David's fault. It says, she's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, now that should have stopped David in his tracks, okay? First of all, she's part of a family. Secondly, she's the wife of someone. She's married, so hands off, King David. But thirdly, she's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. This is not a stranger. This is a guy that David spent many days and nights with. This is a guy that stood by his side and fought for him and with him as he fled from King Saul. It's one of his most loyal, trusted, fighting men. He should have heard that and said, oh, I feel bad for just, I just, oh, what do I, what do, I do? I just saw his wife. And I, 
But instead he goes, bring her to me. He calls for her. What a dirtbag. You know? And she comes. She had to. She had no choice. I mean, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail from this point, okay? Which is probably good. Keep it PG for church. But uh, David sleeps with her, and, and, I, and it doesn't give us any emotion of Bathsheba whatsoever. You know, it, so we have to be careful not to think of this like a current um, modern-day affair where it's two people sort of sneaking behind their spouse's backs. Um, this is a king ordering a woman to do something and her having very little choice. So I think that's why the Bible puts all of it on David. She didn't have any choice in this matter. If she did, her life would certainly be in danger. And so we don't see any emotion from her, but he sleeps with her. And now at this point, you know, sends her home. David has committed adultery, which is a big deal in Israel. It's still a big deal today, but in that day, that that warranted the death penalty. You can get killed for that. So already David's done something that that could get him executed and he isn't finished yet, not even close. So he thinks, well, just some casual sex, no big deal. Your eye's never going to know. Bathsheba won't tell. You know, she knows what's good for her. And he's not too worried about it, probably. He's king, and the power's gone to his head. And uh, he probably thinks nobody's ever going to find out. And how many of us have felt like that uh, right about at our biggest screw-up? Ah, who cares? Nobody's ever going to know. Or maybe you just heard that, that famous one-liner that the enemy likes to give you. Oh, come on. Don't be such a, don't be such a, you know, a, don't be so tight wound, you know. Just take one puff, just one drink, just one look, just one click. And then he says, nobody will ever know. That's like his famous one-liner. And somehow we all go, yeah, good point. No one will ever know. That's great. That's brilliant. You're right. It'll just be one thing, and, and I'll just be the one to know it, and I can deal with myself. And, and the funny thing about all those circumstances is that nothing could be further from the truth because everybody knows. You know how many conversations I've had with people and with myself about things they thought no one would ever know, and years later, everyone knows? These are the kind of things that get on the front page of the Argus. These are the kind of things that get put all over Facebook. 3,000 years later, we're still reading about it. And David thought, no one will ever know. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is the most famous thing in David's life other than killing a giant. Was sleeping with Bathsheba. And he thought, no one will ever know. No big deal. Thought he could cover it up. And of course, he gets this note. What every guy wants to hear trying to cover up sexual sin. I'm pregnant. Oh boy. I just picture David, you know, he's not as cool anymore. He's, his palms start to sweat. Heart starts to race a little bit. He thinks... Boy, this is time sensitive. I need to cover this one up. And then he comes up with a brilliant plan. You know, being this amazing, witty king. He says, I'll just call Uriah home. After all, there's no such thing as paternity tests. So uh, I'll have him come home and, you know, he'll do what's natural when guys come home from the battlefield. And and Uriah will raise my kid as his. The only thing they had back then was if Uriah would someday say, why does my boy look a lot like King David? And there'd be no way to prove anything. So it would be a perfect cover-up if he could have gotten it pulled off. Too bad that Uriah is such a stand-up dude. So he calls Uriah back to the palace. And I imagine this must have been one of the most awkward conversations in the whole Bible. King David you know, calls him in and says, Uriah, bro, what's up, man? How you doing? Hey, let's talk battle for a little bit. I was just so eager to hear about the details of the battle. Yeah, right. 
and that I just had to call you back to talk with you a little bit. So tell me about Joab. What's our strategy? You know, how's Rabbah coming? Are we, are we in a position to take it over yet? Give me the details, man. Give me the details. And after they get done with some, you know, small talk about battle and, and the strategy and stuff, David says, by the way, how's your family doing? What's your wife's name? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bathsheba. She's a nice lady. And, and uh, you know, just, I mean, what an awkward conversation. He says, by the way, you should just go home and hang out tonight at your house. And, and, and here's a gift for you. He even sends a gift along. I'm like, he's getting a little obvious here. He's trying to cover something up. But he says, go, go, go. You know, wash your feet. Go be at home. And Uriah won't do it. Uriah won't do it. He sleeps outside. It's just too much of a stand-up guy. It's so interesting, the Bible's contrast here between David, this sleazeball, and, and Uriah, this straight-up guy that won't even do a minor infraction like going home and sleeping at his house when he's, when he's called back home by the king. Some scholars think Uriah might have known. And he's just pushing David like, I'm going to make this dude sweat it out until he tells me. But he slept outside the palace. And David says, okay, well, let's try again. And he gives him some liquid courage and tries to get him drunk and, and works with him that way. Usually that'll work to lower a guy's inhibitions and, and he'll just do whatever. Uh, nope, still slept at the king's palace. So David says, I got to take matters into my own hands. They leave me no option. And he sends a note with Uriah. This is so weird. He sends a note with Uriah that says to Joab, the commander, look, uh, I want you to put Uriah at the front. Then when the fighting gets hot, withdraw from him so he's struck down. And Joab's reading this like, boy, the king hasn't fought a battle in a while. He's a little rusty. This is going to look obvious. And Joab can tell he wants Uriah dead, but he's like, that's going to make me look like an idiot. So you'll see Joab kind of tweaks the plan a little bit. He says, let's attack an area of the wall that's really, that's, that's got some valiant men and they're going to shoot at us and we're going to lose a few guys, but at least I'm not going to look like I tried to do it so he does it. And David murders Uriah and some other men, by the way, with enemy arrows. Murders him. Finishes him off. Of course, Joab sends word back through a servant to David saying what has happened. And David, heartbroken, you know, has the courage and the gumption to say, tell Joab, no worries. This stuff happens. The sword devours some. What a dirtbag. I mean, does this make you angry? That makes me angry just reading this. But here's the thing. Okay, so David repents, and we, we, we even read that in Psalm 51 today. He repents heartfelt. But you think, what does God do with this? If we're angry about this, how does God feel about this? It says it displeased the Lord. I think that's an understatement. How does God feel about this? I would think God is sitting there going, Oh, myself, this is ridiculous. I just made promises to you like a couple chapters ago. And then David, hey, it only took you one chapter to break almost half the commandments. Way to go. You are the biggest screw up I've ever seen. I called you a man of God. I can't believe this. You know what, David? I'm done. I'm out of here. You're on your own, man. Have fun being the guy that get, you know, loses everything in a matter of a couple of months. Because I'm leaving and you're nothing without me. God could have done that. But that's not what he does. It's not what he does. He's angry. You bet he's angry. And if he wasn't angry, he wouldn't be a good God. Right? But what does he do? Well, we've got to look at Matthew to see what he actually does with this. 
Um, this is a genealogy. I know what you're saying, Pastor Dave. Just what I was hoping for at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, a genealogy. But these kind of things become so meaningful in light of these kind of texts. All right, you're going to start to see, you're going to see something amazing, something brilliant, something incredible that God does with David's screw up. All right, so we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 7, or through 6 here. And, you know, if you ever get stuck reading a genealogy at a Bible study, just a little helpful hint here. Just plow through that thing. Don't stop for anything. Read it quickly and confidently. Don't say, oh, do you know how to say this one? No, just keep reading. Nobody will know the difference. So here we go. We're going to read this as quickly as possible. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that's a hint already. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So here we are at David from Abraham, um, and that's where we're going to be in our discipleship uh, series today. And then it says this. And this just, you know, this is stunning every time I read it. Matthew, the, the author of this gospel, says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And then and on and on and on to Jesus, to Joseph, and then Jesus comes into Joseph's family. But did you catch that? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even use Bathsheba's name. I think this is kind of like a jab. <laughs> you know, like, by the wife of Uriah... You know, you idiot. But, th- but this is right here. And, and along with that, did you catch that there's some other characters in here as well? I mean, Rahab was a prostitute. Um, we see that Judah is in here. He sold his brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Ruth was a Moabitess, a pagan woman. There's some screw-ups in here, some big-time screw-ups. And so maybe we're not in such bad company along with all these other people. That God sent his son. You mean to tell me that God sent his own son into human existence through a line of people that included an adulterous, murderous relationship? Yep. That's what he did. That's what he did. I mean, it's crazy. It's unthinkable. And God not only did that, but he used all these other people and their screw-ups to, he worked in them, he came into the mess, he got his hands dirty, and he worked to bring about the greatest good in Jesus Christ that the world has ever known. That is, that's crazy. That is even scandalous, isn't it? It's just, it's just wild how God would do that. And if this is what God did with David's screw-up, I wonder where he's at in ours. I wonder what he's up to. Now, what am I certainly not saying to you today? I'm certainly not saying, go out and sin all you want and screw up big time because God's just going to use it anyway. And God loves to do this sort of thing and just come behind all your screw-ups and and bring something good out of it. Obviously, uh, that's not what I'm saying today. God is angry towards our sin. He hates it. And we certainly must remember that David's sin had grave consequences. I'm not skimming over that today. The son that he had from his adultery with Bathsheba died as a consequence of his sin. Additionally, David's whole family life was a train wreck from there on out. 
This sin had big time consequences. God didn't remove all the natural sin from this, or all the natural consequences from this sin. But God does come into it and work in it. Now, if if you're in here and you say, well, you know, that's kind of my logical conclusion. If God forgives sin uh, this way, then, uh, you know, why not sin more? And I get it. That is logical. But if that's where your brain goes, like, hey, God forgives sin, so I'm just going to sin more, then that just shows you that you haven't become a Christian yet. Which, hey, welcome. We love having you here. If you're not a Christian, we love, love, love the fact that you're here. But here's what a Christian does when they see what God has done to love them. When a Christian sees what, God, what it cost God to love them, forgive them, and set them free, it makes them say, let me obey him. I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to wander from him. Let me follow him. I'll do whatever he asks. I'll give my whole life to him. It, it produces this weird paradoxical obedience in us. We see his grace and it says, I want to obey. It produces obedience in us because we see how gracious he's been with us. Now, speaking of God's grace, let's, let's jump back to David for a minute here. Remember that big, massive promise? We're going to be talking about it a little bit today in the discipleship class, I'm guessing. Uh, that, God would never, or that God would never remove his love from his family, but also that God would send the, the eventual king of kings through David's line, that God would establish David's throne forever. Remember that promise? You think, based on what David did, that's got to be out the window. But God kept that promise to David too. He was good on that promise too. See, many years later, another one of David's descendants would be born, as we saw in the genealogy in Matthew. This would be another son who would also have to die, just like the son that was born to him in Bathsheba out of adultery. But Jesus Christ did not die as a consequence for David's sin. He died to remove it and to destroy his sin forever. And not just for David, but for you and I as well. On the cross, Jesus Christ became the greatest screw-up so that our record could be clean. He became the worst of what we are so that we could be as righteous as he is. And while he hung there, they put this sign above him said, King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Put a crown of thorns on his head. It was totally done out of mockery. Totally done to make fun of his claims. But but the joke was on them because nothing could have been more true. This was God's promise to David coming true. Hundreds of years after God had made the promise, the King of Kings was here. The one who would rule and reign forever. He was here. Bleeding screeching, dying on a cross for them. Where is God in our screw-ups? Well, he isn't afraid of them, I'll tell you that much. He doesn't say, well, I got to get my hands out of this. I just, I got to, I got to turn around. I got to, I got to get away from these disgusting, sinful people. No, he comes into our screw-ups with us. He gets his hands dirty He works in them to bring us to himself and to bring about good even in the midst of it. But more than that, our God takes our screw-ups on himself. That's what Jesus Christ did. That's what he did. You know, Easter 
is a special time for me. I know it's special for every Christian. It's the, it's the pinnacle of our year. It's the Super Bowl of Christianity. Without Easter, we got nothing, okay? Uh, but about 11 years ago, an Easter Sunday morning, I walked into a church. And, uh, I, you know, there's this thin, sharp-looking, black-haired southern pastor preaching. You might have met him. And he was preaching about uh, a Sunday unlike any other. And, and he was saying that because of the first Sunday unlike any other, the first Easter Sunday, that all my screw-ups could be forgiven. He was saying that because of the Sunday unlike any other, I didn't have to carry my bags of sin and shame around anymore. He was saying that because of the cross and the empty tomb, I could be free. He spoke of a God that came into, joined me in my screw-up and took, a, took it upon himself. And, you know, I'd heard that message many different ways before. I grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school. But somehow, some way, that morning, the message made that long 18-inch journey from my head to my heart, and God set me free. I was a different person. I was a different person. I think that's what God wants for you today. Maybe there's just one of you in here today. That's totally worth it. As I was praying and getting ready, I'm like, if there's just one person that God can set free today through this, through David's life, through my life, then that's totally worth it. Can you grab a hold of this today that God may just have been using your screw-ups, even your screw-ups, to bring you to himself, to bring about good that God isn't afraid of them or washing his hands clean of you, that he hasn't left you or, or said, I'm done with you because of your screw-ups, but that he's joined you in them. He's working in the midst of them to bring you to himself, to bring about good, and that he's taken them upon himself. Can you buy into that today? You know, for some of you, I, I recognize it's 20, 20 seconds of sin that you just can't let go of. Some of you have done time for that, 20 seconds. And it's just like you've replayed it millions of times in your mind. Why, 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 God, did you let me do something so boneheaded? It's so stupid. I can't believe it. And it's cost me so much. And how could you ever be in that? And maybe today you can get free. You can understand that King David screwed up. God forgave him. He he ran to God, repented, and God forgave him and restored him. Yeah, you're dealing with the consequences of your sin, but God's arm is not too short to save. And his power is active even in your mess, even in your screw-ups. For others of you, maybe it's 20 years that you just say, well, it's just been one screw-up after another, and I've just wasted so much of my life. And so I carry around this sort of low-grade depression about, about just being a, a, an idiot, about just having wasted so much stuff my time and my energy and, and I, just, I just carry a lot of regret and shame about it. Can you trust it to him today? That he doesn't waste anything in his children's life? He's not going to waste anything in your life. He can bring it for your good. Can you trust him with it today? Can you leave it at the cross? Can you trust that because of the empty tomb your sin is broken? Its power is done? Can you leave it there? You don't have to wait for Easter Sunday. Each Sunday is an Easter Sunday here at Life Church. If you can do this, friends, and, and repent and turn to Him and trust Him with your sin, I guarantee you, God can even use your greatest screw ups for His glory, 
your good and the flourishing of all those around you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you didn't edit out the major screw-ups in the Bible. That you left this big one in there from King David to remind us that every last one of us is so deeply in need of a Savior. Every last one of us is so deeply broken and flawed and capable of incredible transgressions that we need you. And you've come to us in our need and rescued us, and we thank you for that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that today you would provide the atmosphere and the freedom for whoever that is today to get free. We ask that for the rest of us, maybe we've we found our freedom in the cross, but, but help us not to get over it. Help us not to get over what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, that you have made a way, that you have joined us in our wickedness, in our brokenness, in our screw-ups, and that you've taken it upon yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dave. If this morning, as you listen to Pastor Dave tell the story of one of the biggest screw-ups in the Bible, and you started thinking about what's going on in your life, or those 20 seconds or longer than that, that have burdened you for so long, we want to offer to pray with you, to talk to you, and to introduce you to that Jesus who forgives. He came... God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for each and every one of us. Whether our screw-up was at the magnitude of what David did or in the big scheme of things, it seems so minor. All of us are in need of Jesus and are in need of that forgiveness. So I invite you today to come up front. I'm going to have the prayer team come on up and join me up here. And I promise you this is a group of people who care and love you, who have their own screw-ups in their life that Jesus has come through and helped them work through. So if you want to come and ask for prayer, they will pray with you. It is a safe place to have that conversation. So we're going to pray together, and then if you'd like prayer, come on up. And if not, if you want to quietly exit so that those who need prayer can get that. Dear God, thank you. Thank you that you come and stand beside us, that you sent your son to die for each and every one of us and for the sin in our lives. Help us to look to you and to understand that you want to forgive us. Be with us this week. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you. Amen.